Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Good morning, Marcus. How are you? G'day, Annie, and yeah, morning morning to all the listeners out there. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's actually, uh, I think it's turned the corner. It's now not winter. I think it's now officially spring, even if it is. Spring has sprung. Yeah, hugely <laughs> cold outside. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. Um, we've got a few uh, bits of news to give people before we kick off. Uh, w- last week we talked to uh, Alex White from uh, Unions ACT. You know, the uh, really clever idea of using uh, what they've got up in Canberra, which is, or the ACT, uh, they've got this thing called the Industrial Magistrates Court. And he had the idea, or people up there had the idea that they could use it to uh, streamline the uh, wage theft complaints, and uh, apparently, the on the twenty second, which was Thursday, uh, they've uh, the ACT government introduced a proposal with the new laws that will restore the ability for workers in unions to quickly, simply, and inexpensively seek justice in wage theft cases by using the industrial. Uh, magistrate's court, but uh, interestingly enough, it's got the the next step. They're calling for people to, uh, up there I presume, uh, to uh, pressure the uh, members of the ACT Assembly to back the proposal. So this is the uh, next step um, for that proposal. So that's it's made its next step, basically. What sort of uh, penalties are they calling for? Jail time for people like <laughs> George Columbaris? No, I de- I, well, yeah, who knows? I mean, it's focusing on uh, Canberra and wage theft there. Mm. And uh, I mean, you know, George Columbaris, what, I mean, they're, they're, he's, he and his sort, and there are others, and they've been oh, no, dear, outed, dear. Uh, are doing this on a monumental level. Because they've got empires, commercial empires. Well, that's how the very reason capitalism exists through wage theft. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, by the by, it's it's a it's, it's a clever way of pushing that into some sort of uh, realistic uh, way of getting people, especially young people, to get their payback from these people. Uh, yeah, and then there's some other things that have come to our attention that. Uh, coming out of Canberra, this really strange little story about um, the, there's these uh, six 
migrant working women who are facing deportation from Australia after escaping last month from extreme workplace exploitation. They're now being told that they're going to have to, uh, uh, because they've stood up uh, to uh, get out of these sort of slave-like conditions, they've um, now being told they're going to be deported, of course. And so they've been um, assisted by unions in Canberra uh, to uh, get themselves out of this uh, situation. I, I think they were masseurs, and I think that they've been here for five years, which is a long time. But in order for them to stay, the um, ACT uh, unions are uh, needing to come up with this is very interesting too. Uh, they need ten thousand dollars to be over ten thousand two hundred dollars to place uh, to lodge uh, applications to extend their visas because it costs individually it costs one thousand seven hundred dollars each to be allowed to apply to get their ex- visas extended. Isn't that a lot of money? <laughs> Did you know that? <laughs> no, I didn't know that. But, yeah, I was just thinking, um, yeah. But, that, yeah. I, yeah. Wonder, I wonder who's using their services being in uh, Canberra. <laughs> <laughs> you, were already, but you were back at the previous part of the conversation. <laughs> but, anyway, they're, they're, they've put out a plea for people to put some donations in. Yeah, to uh, help them. They've already, uh, 65 people have already put some money in and so they've raised $3,500, but they're hoping that uh, other people might help out so that they can make that $10,200 to help these people who uh, to remain in Australia so that they can uh, then um, maintain, uh, deal with the exploitation issues rather than, you know, to actually face up to the fact that Australia is being used by uh, people who are allowing this kind of thing to happen. And instead of the workers having to uh, deal with the uh, fallout, then actually these people who are unscrupulously bringing them in should have to face the consequences. Anyway, this is a really big deal. And of course, uh, ACT has this wonderful glossy face. Apparently yesterday they had a big military expo with all their little trinkets and uh, machines all on show for the public to feel good about uh, violence in its uh, military form. <laughs> so Canberra yeah, well, is a funny place. Well, it's where all the yeah, arms traders have got their big yeah, yeah. palatial head offices, companies like Boeing and Lockheed mm. Martin there. Mm. Yeah, all cosy, cosy, cosy. Anyway, that was the uh, next thing. So go to uh, ACT Union's website and see if uh, if you're in a position to help those people out because this is a big deal. Uh, and uh, the next thing on our list is that there's going to be a snap action for uh, refugees on uh, tomorrow, t- twelve o'clock to one thirty p.m. at the State Library. Uh, there. Um, it's to try and save uh, Priya, Nadi, and the girls. Uh, a two-year-old. These these characters are um, being told that uh, they they have to be moved out. Um, and the uh, general belief is that uh, Minister Coleman has the power to step in and save this family. 
uh, just as they did for the uh, Wunnabal Vernissri and her family last week. But apparently it's more difficult when you're a Tamil family uh, trying to escape from persecution in uh, Sri Lanka. So there's going to be a snap action. There's a lot of things under uh, that are going to be discussed at that uh, particular um, meeting outside the uh, State Library. There's a variety of speakers and they're going to be ta- also be talking about uh, things like um, uh, closing uh, Nauru and Manus and uh, also the uh, efforts by Peter Dutton to repeal the Medivac bill, which is, you know, such a, a minor uh, rel- relinquishing of their um, power over the uh, life and death over the people who were in these detention centres. Apparently, I think it was on Manus yesterday, one of the people there actually... Um, put themselves on fire, uh, self-emulated yesterday in front of one of the doctors. So it's not like it's not desperate. So if this is uh, something you want to uh, contribute to and listen to hear more more about and show your throw your weight behind, there is a snap action tomorrow outside the state library, and it's an appalling affront to Australian uh, democracy, that that should exist at all. And there's a last story that we have to uh, tell people about. Uh, Yeah, today at 9.30am, the Solidarity Convoy will depart from Trades Hall to head to the uh, Jabwarung Embassy. That's today at 9.30, the Solidarity uh, Convoy to the Jabwarung Embassy, where, of course... uh, the locals there have been fighting now for oh, over a year, is it, to save yeah, the fifteen eight, months? Fifteen months to save the eight hundred year old birthing trees that the uh, government wants to destroy and build a, a freeway through there. So, yeah, that's right. It's building, and it's building, it's building. So, what is it? Uh, at nine thirty, the uh, Jab Rawang uh, elders are going to give a, a, a talk, a speech, and the convoys leading leaving at eleven thirty. Uh, it's a call out from solidarity, saying that uh, uh, unionists are invited to come and support these people. But of course, anybody can go to support Aboriginal rights in Victoria. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. Uh, My name is Anita Gibson. I'm a business development officer from Brisbane. I'm up here because I am fighting to save my way of life. Um... Climate change and the consequences of climate change are going to destroy our world and our civilization. And I want healthcare in my old age, quite frankly. <laughs> That's not going to be there if we don't have food and we don't have water. We're certainly not going to have hospitals. We're not going to have medical care. Um, so, you know, 
Australia needs a, a quality climate change policy in place so that we can actually take appropriate steps to prevent this disaster. The government doesn't have one, uh, so I'm up here working with these people to make one. And the first step in the policy is no new coal. So we've got to stop this mine. Have you ever done anything like this before? <laughs> no, actually, no. Um, but the reality is just, it's really scary. So I'm stepping outside of my comfort zone, you know. When the fight is this important, you, you do the hard things. And how are you founding the, the protest camp here west of Bowen? Oh, it's absolutely wonderful. Like, it's... Uh, as soon as I arrived, I felt relaxed and happy. Uh, and then actually, you know, kind of went through the induction where they show you around. I was so impressed with how well it's set up. Um, it's really organised. It's really clear. All of the facilities that you could imagine are available. Uh, I brought so much stuff up with me. I, like, I went to a camping store and bought all of this extra gear and I got here and found that I didn't need any of it because they have everything under control. Um, yeah, and then the actual people are marvellous. Like, it's an incredibly loving, uh, supportive, really safe community. Everyone cares about the same core issue. So you all have that underlying um, understanding for each other and everything can build from that. So everyone I've met, doesn't matter where they're from or what their background is, I've been able to have really good comfortable conversations uh, and feel like we're working together to something important. Isn't there, a, isn't there a group here called community care even to look after people, make sure everyone's just okay? Yeah, yeah, which I think is wonderful. And um, every morning they have a morning meeting and kind of go over any new things that are coming up and remind everyone that that kind of care is available and if you have any questions or if you are uncomfortable in any way, um, that that group is there and you can go and talk to them. And it, you don't have to go to like one official meeting or whatever. They let you know who those individuals are and you can approach them whenever you need. But there's also um, several really nicely set up kind of relaxation spaces that you can go to get away from the hustle and bustle because you would be surprised. I thought, oh, all right, I'm going to a camp. There's going to be a lot of downtime. There is not a lot of downtime. Um, you are busy all day doing useful, valuable things that contribute to this fight. And you can choose at any time which things you want to be doing and you can step back and have a bit of time to yourself if you need to. And they've very carefully made sure that everybody knows that and that you have that space. So you can go to your own campsite if you want or you can go to one of these beautiful little um, set-up areas to just go and have a chill out away from the, away from the hustle and bustle. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus, and that was the voice of Anita, one of the people that who is at the Adani protest camp up in Queensland, and uh, she's speaking to 3CR Earth Matters reporter Beck Orridge, and we've got Beck on the line. She's going to give us an idea of uh, how things are going up there. G'day, Beck. How are you? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm on, on top form. Greetings from Camp Bimby, where there's a gentle rain falling after a very dry spell. Oh, wow. That's really nice. Um, you, there's me, Annie, and Marcus in the studio. So we're really... Hi, Marcus. G'day, Beck. 
<laughs> We're really keen to find out uh, what's uh, your experience up at uh, the Adani camp because, of course, this is a really important uh, flashpoint in Australian politics and future, isn't it? Well, that's right. It is an important point in history. I mean, we've been hearing that the Arctic's on fire, huge ice melts in Greenland. No time to waste, eh? Um, everything's moving faster than was anticipated by the scientists. The worst-case scenarios are forming around climate disruption and disarray. And, yeah, wasn't it the United Nations said we have 12 years to turn this around? Um, and I think that means starting now. And so is the camp a big camp? Um, well, I'm not, not really privy to give away too many details, but there's, oh, certainly, okay. plenty of, there's certainly plenty of people to talk to here of all sorts, like Anita said. I mean, there's a combination of many different groups are, are forming here, um, from Grey Power to Sopadani Movement, Bob, Bork, Bob Brown Convoy, Extinction Rebellion, uh, Travellers, Dogs, Kids, they're all here. <laughs> which gives... A huge range of people. Yeah, which um, gives people a different view of uh, uh, what... Uh, the composition of people is, you know, like there's uh, when you when it's talked about in the mainstream media, it's all about how dare these people affect our economy. Well, that's right. Um, well, the economy is about is is being impacted by climate change already. So, you know, Anita left a little early. Amazing things happened here. Xavier Rudd dropped in a couple of evenings ago to play for us. So. That's pretty good. Yeah, and as you said, there's so much to do. The different working groups from garden, first aid, driving people around, legal team, media. Uh, as she said, I think maybe for every person that takes the legal action, there are at least a dozen are needed in support roles. And, and the response from the unions up there has been a mixed response. Is there union representation at the uh, camp? I haven't met the particular union representative. I can't say I've been searching around, but there's oh, certainly okay. tradies here helping us out. Okay. Um, you know, like all of these battles, it's not against the workers. What I would I would say the best outcome for the workers would be the just transition that they might get in a more progressive country like Sweden or Norway for an industry that's seen as a sunset industry like coal. Yeah, because they're trying to sell the Adani on, on the basis there's going to be jobs for people when, of course, yeah, I mean, how many jobs is there going to be, short-term jobs that are going to destroy the environment? Well, sure, I mean, it's a very touchy issue up here. There is a shortage of jobs in central Queensland. And coal is a massive part of the employment um, arrangements up here. I think it must be inconceivable for some people up here to think that the age of coal could ever end. I mean... Queensland's in an economic and ideological bubble. It's formed a wall of coal-fueled denial, um, you know, fully supporting the Adani mine. And it's incredible, the politicians up here. Let me just name a few of them. Jason Costigan, member for Whitsunday. Michelle Landry, member for Capricornia. Matt Canavan, Queensland LNP senator. George Christensen, LNP member for Dawson. You know, they're all barracking for a new coal fire power plant in this region. It just seems impossible that that could happen at this crucial time in history, in a place that's so sunny as central Queensland. Could you believe it? But people up here, they really believe that this is going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we've been getting um, moving slightly away from that to uh, what's going on in Brisbane. 
there is a, a concerted effort by uh, people to actually put their uh, bodies on the line effectively for the future of the planet. It's quite clear, and it's the same with this protest camp. That's right. I did actually. I I, I did meet somebody here who had glued his hand to the road in Brisbane. Oh, and a, a very congenial, mild-mannered guy too. Yeah, it's very brave. Very brave indeed. Extremely brave. A, a great power person. Oh, really? um, you know, there's, there's a lot of really, really young, switched-on people here. It's amazing to see all learning to work together in a non-hierarchical. Um, decision-making process. It's very well organised here at Camp Bimby. In fact, in terms of all the different sorts of protest camps I've been to, this is the smoothest running, which is really good to see because it's such an important issue. And when you when you say that um, you have to be careful about details and all the rest of it, I mean, mm-hmm. I know that uh, in the past, when I a long time ago, I went to Baxter and uh, we were camped outside Baxter, which is in... Um, South Australian, it was about refugees. And yeah. all through the night, they helicoptered across and, and strafed the area with um, uh, um, lights coming from the um, helicopters, which was really weird. Uh, I mean, it's weird. It's, 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 these days it's drones. There have been drones flying over and, you know, there are um, the odd car search. And there, there aren't very many police in this region, though. I mean... Claremont, it's quite a backwater up here. There aren't a lot of police, and um, there's a, a low crime rate in Claremont, so there's a lot of policing there already. I mean, they haven't really sent in the troopers to deal with this situation yet, but, you know, Richard Flanagan, the author, said that we could, if we could get five... If there were 5,000 people up here, this situation... we could this, this situation could be won. The Adani mine could be stopped if there was a lot of people who would be willing to come up here. I certainly wouldn't want to incite anybody to come up here and, and be part of civil disarray or, or commit crimes, but I would want to encourage people to come up here and experience this camp because it's it's one of a kind. If you really want to live in a in a consensus-based community for a while with people who are like-minded and care about the earth and each other, this is the place to experience it. Yeah, that's very interesting. And do you... Is the culture of the camp in stark contrast to the local world that you are uh, have inserted yourself in? Look, you know, I don't think, like perhaps around economics and certain forms of ideology, but at heart we're all the same, aren't we? I mean, yeah. Um, I, I, I had a, a weird experience that as a journalist, um, friend Heather was locked onto a drill rig I was there reporting on the event and then the police arrived and asked that all the protesters leave to 30-kilometre distance. Oh. And then and then he said, are there any journalists here? And I went, yes, I'm a journalist. And he said, all right, you stand over here. And he put a white, uh, put a, an orange bollard about 40 metres away from the action in a place where I couldn't see this woman who was locked onto a drilling rig said, you have to stand there anyway. All the protesters left, and I was left there live streaming with just the workers and the security guards for about, I don't know, an hour or something until Heather decided to unlock herself. And then I drove all the way back to Claremont with the second in charge of police there and had a long conversation with him. Of course, he's a nice guy. 
seems to be a very nice guy. And he said that Claremont is a lovely community with a very low crime rate. So, hey, we all just want peace and prosperity, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Um, this will go on for quite a while. Well, this yes. At the moment, they're clearing trees. Mm. Um, preparing for their dams and tailings areas and things like that for the mine. I guess it's easier to try and stop someone clearing trees than it is trying to stop people with explosives and heavy machinery in even more dangerous situ- situations. Yep. Uh, once the trees are gone, well, that part of their motivation is gone. This really is the last critical habitat for the black-throated finch. Um, so... Anybody, I mean, how's the weather in Melbourne? It's cold and crisp. <laughs> it's cold and crisp. It's lovely and warm. <laughs> well, that's an encouragement in itself, Beck. Oh, I wouldn't want to rub anybody's nose in it. <laughs> There's, uh, you know, people that do come up here, they can be picked up from the airport. In my case, I think flying for this sort of thing is justified. Oh, but yeah. There's train, there's train stations and... Um, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll keep a, an ear out for all the stuff that you're doing. Thank you very much for um, spending some time with us to give us... That's right. Frontline Action on Coal does have a website and a Facebook page, and, or you could go in through Stopadani um, pages or Blockade Galilee. And it's not only in central Queensland that you can be active. There's plenty of role, um, cyber role, and um, there's been rallies, of course, in offices of um, contractors that want to get involved, like GHD and Vaber and, and Meals in the city. Yeah. Jump in, folks. Thanks, mate. Bye. Thanks, Bye. Beck.
A little bit of Xavier Rudd, who turned up at the Adani protest camp. What a good bloke. Or rather, anybody who uh, is on the side of saving the planet's a good bloke. G'day, Di Cummings. How are you? Good morning, Annie. Yeah. Uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie Thank and you. Marcus. Yeah. Come on, Marcus. Yeah, this morning on Solidarity Breakfast, we're joined by uh, Di Cummings, the... Um, the wife of the late and great John Cummins. Uh, welcome to 3CR, Di. We, uh, John's well-known and well-known to the listeners. Thank, thank you, Marcus. And can I say um, that music was um, pretty appropriate. John was a fan, a big fan of Xavier Rudd. Yeah, good. Oh, well, <laughs> see, happy a- accidents going on here yes. all the time. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, John was a long-serving presenter on 3CR, Di. Yes, um, the Concrete Gang on Sunday mornings. Yes, I can't say I was a real fan, you know, <laughs> leaving the house real early and, you know, I think I also had to look after um, one of the other guys that was on the concrete gang for a while, one of his kids. And so uh, I'd be chasing around three boys in the garden and, and uh, John was on the concrete gang. Having fun. <laughs> yeah. I think he went by the name of uh, Harold, was it? Harold Silk, I think it was. Um, the concrete gang team would know better than me, but I think... 
the name was uh, taken from some boss for some reason. Oh. Um, sorry, I don't have the the uh, the real background to it, but the Concrete Gang guys will, will uh, no doubt mention that soon. They probably thought it was hysterical. I think they might have, but they all had they all had pseudonyms, don't they? Or they still yeah, do, they still probably. Do. Yeah, 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 and they got cut. Smart. Yeah, and it cuts. It's not just uh, to disguise themselves. It has this fantastic ability to uh, really cut to the quick when it comes to uh, the characteristics of the individual. Yes, yes, <laughs> it yes, can be a bit yes. rude, really. Yeah, and funny. <laughs> funny, yeah, yeah. So, if we have a look at uh, John's early life, how did he become active in the trade union movement, Doy? Oh, it's interesting. Well, um, obviously, he came from. Um, you know, an ordinary, when I say an ordinary family, sort of working class family. Um, uh, but during his university days, uh, he got involved in a lot of things. Um, but on holidays, he um, he worked in the construction industry. And he that influenced him a lot. And uh, obviously, uh, he had... He had the choice of choosing a path of teaching or being a builder's labourer, and guess what he chose? <laughs> and he went on to become, yeah, probably uh, undoubtedly one of the greatest union leaders, organisers this country's ever seen. Oh, well, I like to think so, but I'm a little bit biased. <laughs> <laughs> but in a funny kind of way, he melded the two careers. Yes, oh, actually, that's a really good point, Annie. He, he did, and I think um, that's one of the things that we're involved in with the Camo Fund. I think, uh, I believe, that education, uh, equal opportunity to education uh, is essential um, in in our society. And uh, I think uh, if you, if you um, receive a, a good education, then you've got choices in life. And if you choose to be a builder's labourer, well, good on you, um, and that's great. But if you choose to be a teacher or anything else, um, I think it's really important that we all have choices, not just some. You know, uh, the thing about it is that when uh, John was a builder's labourer, when he did that, uh, their conditions were abhorrent. Yes, yeah. Um, which which brings me to, you know, um, we talked about John being, being um, I like to, to call it an inspirational leader. And, and um, he was, he, I, I suppose I could say he was challenged by injustice um, and, and affronted by it uh, and uh, felt that uh, he needed to get involved to, to, um, to do what he could to, to make things uh, reasonable and fair. And, and the most important thing to him um, during his career as a builder's labourer, uh, was the right to a safe workplace. And he, fair working conditions were important, but a safe workplace was number one. And he was a fearless leader. I mean, he was arrested numerous times simply uh, for representing members going onto construction sites. Yeah, that's another that's that's another story in our lives we look back on. <laughs> um, it's it's um, not coincidental, but um, August seemed to be the time that uh, he would spend the most time in jail. Um, and, and, and that's one of the reasons when we established the Camo Fund that we decided that um, August was a, an important month for a number of reasons. But, um, yes, he spent a couple of birthdays in jail, put it that way. And, yeah, the John Cummins Memorial Foundation was established uh, after John's passing, and uh, so that supports our young people through scholarships? 
Yeah, um, well, we're, we're now, because John died um, in August, 29th of August um, 2006, um, uh, that was as a result of a malignant brain tumour. So uh, because of the fact that during John's illness, during his lifetime um, and following his death, we were just overwhelmed, our family and, and friends, with, uh, with the support that we received. Um, so we had no choice but to sort of do something to honour his legacy. And, um, and thanks to the support of the trade union movement um, and many others, uh, you know, individuals, you know, that support by buying raffle tickets, um, we, ha- we've, we have established the Cummo Fund. And as you said, we support um, scholarships for young people to um, strive to achieve their potential. And we also fund the Brain Tumour Support Service at Austin Health. And uh, there's a dinner that's coming up on the 30th. Yep. Yes. Um, so the, we we did the Camo Fund dinner for 10 years, up to 2016. Yep. And now um, the, the, tra- the Victorian Trades Hall Council under Luke... Um, uh, and also closely, closely um, uh, partnering with the CFMEU, um, they've uh, we've got the John Cummins Victorian Union Awards Night next Friday on the thirtieth of August at Flemington. Yeah, it's you know it's really interesting because, uh, like you say, uh, John died in two thousand and six, um, but uh, his candle still burns. People uh, find him. Uh, his character, uh, he wasn't just, uh, he was really smart. He, his yeah. strategy, his tactics were really smart. And he was brave and he was funny. And people really uh, uh, like this. I like that, um, what you've just said, um, Annie, because obviously um, I get to, well, I, I reflect on John and and, um, and all of his qualities and, and his contribution to community and society. Um, but I love the fact that, that um, the way you've described him is brave and funny, and I haven't done that, but I think that, that um, sums it up really well. Because really you well. know that those things about um, we're going to let the, the whole idea of allowing um, uh, concrete to set not be put, <coughs> that just that just takes <laughs> your breath away in in the present climate. It does, and, and things change, and strategies change, um, and that that um, in some respects worked at the time, and. Uh, um, you know, I, I think the other thing about John was that he was strategic, um, and uh, and you, you know, I'm not sure um, what strategies he would use today, but I know that he would be standing up opposing exploitation, and he would be challenging injustice. Um, and as we said, he was a man of principle, regardless of personal cost, and and also a leader you want to a leader that you want to follow. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, John was a, a life member down at the North Heidelberg Football Club, um, yes. located in a yeah, solid working class area, and the foundation also supports the young people at that, that yeah. club. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that, Marcus. Our, our um, yeah, John, community meant a lot to John, um, and uh, our sons played at um, North Heidelberg um, Football Club, and believe it or not, when they started, it was called West Heidelberg Boys Club. With the emphasis on boys, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so things change, don't they? Yep. Um, which is great. Uh, and John became president of the club, and he's. Uh, we still, you know, as you know, we sponsor the club, um, 
each year, and um, this year we've uh, we've granted three and a half thousand. Um, and what we're doing is um, that's that's a grant for match day jumpers for the girls junior girls football team at oh, Bundura fantastic. Park. Oh, that's so, great. So yeah, so the connection with um, with the community at the sporting club continues, and um, yeah, we're really proud of that. And the club rooms there are named after John, of course. Oh yeah, you know heaps, Marcus, <laughs> don't you? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, they are. Actually, I'll tell you a funny story. I was very keen on John to get involved in the in the sporting club there, on the football club there, because I thought it provided him with like an outlet from you know the the industrial and you know the stress of you know being a trade union official and a trade union leader. Um, and then before I know it, he was sort of totally immersed in it and became president of the club. So he was president of his union and president of his football club. So. <laughs> His kingdom. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, he wouldn't have had too much, uh, too much spare time, would he? No, but uh, we used to make sure he, he did his fair share, but I have to say he wasn't much of a cook. <laughs> <laughs> that's where you came. I was going to say, it's quite clear that uh, anybody, anybody who does a great job in the community like this has to have uh, full family support. I mean... You know, there has to be an intellectual as well as a physical acceptance of the uh, fight that has to be fought coming from the household as well. Yes, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, my sons, my sons and I are obviously um, supporters and, you know, we, um, we have our own contributions to make in community and society and we, we do as individuals and we do as a family. Um, but also his extended family, his brother and his sister and at the time his parents. I mean, his parents, I've forgotten how old they were. They would march down the street you know, when John was in jail, um, uh, you know, and how difficult it must have been um, for them. Uh, They'd go to the court cases. I remember one instance when his mother baked a cake for his birthday and we had a demonstration outside Pentridge and she put a nail file on the top of the cake as as a symbolic gesture. <laughs> see? And they wouldn't let her take it in. <laughs> see, we can see where the sense of humour came from. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So, as you said, good family support. Oh, good's not the word, but, but family support. Yeah, you have to be on the same page. Yeah, you have to be on the same side. Sorry? You have to be on the same side. Yes, yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah. That's um, right. Yeah. So can people get tickets, you know, or are um, there yes, still... Yes, yes, there still are. Um, so I bet I should have Jo's phone number. So Jo Little um, is a person to contact. Her number is 0429-233-999. So 0429-233-999. cool. And, uh, yeah, what awards are up for grabs, Doi? I know. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, and, and that's, you know, the, the most important thing about this. I, I don't know what John would think about them being called the John Cummins Victorian Union Awards because <laughs> he was not so much into Him, you know, self-promotion. Self. Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, we're going with it. So, mm-hmm. um, so that we've got the advancement of women's rights, which is oh, an good. important one. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, best workplace campaign. 
so there should be some competition for that one. Yeah, my uh, my workplace won that award last year. That was a big thrill to win oh. the award named after John Cummins. Oh. Well done. Yeah. Um, best photo. I like that one. Best photo award. Um, and, of course, delegate of the year. There's a lot of awards. Um, unionist of the year. That's a big one. Um, and I think there's best media quote of the year and activist of the year. Cool. That's good. There are quite a few. <laughs> so what, do they get a plaque or do they get something they else? They do. They do. And um, uh, the CFMEU has been uh, organised the, the plaques. And, Marcus, you probably know what it looks like. Um, and I don't know if all of them do, but I know the Unionist of the Year, it has some metal from the Westgate Bridge as oh, part of it. goodness. Because John, of course, yeah. worked on the Westgate Bridge, didn't he, when he was a, uh, a Yes, youngster. yeah. And, uh, you know, he was um, uh, part of part of the team that, uh, you know, continued the legacy, remembering the workers uh, that lost their lives and that tragic work- workplace accident and um, the team continue to to remember that loss and learn from it uh, to today. Uh, yeah, you are saying about the trophy before. Yeah, I'll just describe it for the listeners. It's a crafted uh, glass trophy where with the uh, with the camo um, image on it. <laughs> Great. Uh, yeah, of course, that image is well known. Um, you'd see it, construction workers wear it on their uh, high vis. It flies on the crane. I'm wearing it now, actually, so... There you oh, go. Good on you. Good on you. I'm looking at it now. Um, but, yeah, it's, I must say it's just does something when... And it happened um, to me just yesterday driving along. I looked up and saw a Craig, uh, saw a crane and um, the camo flag flying. Oh, you know, um, it's just fantastic. It was um, the idea of, um, I think it was Noel Washington in the union, in the CFMEU, um, to get that flag made and um, and fly it. And, uh, you know, the, the funds that we make, you know, we we get um, the profit from that and that goes to the Como Fund. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. clever so too. So you've got a message out there um, and, uh, and also, you know, uh, as I'd say... Um, I don't like to use the word good cause, but I'm lost for better words at the moment. But it goes to the Como Fund and um, it gets allocated to, to the to the grants that we make each year. So how much has the Como Fund uh, raised over the year? How much, uh, what, the yeah, good question. Um, we, we've just got our winter newsletter out. So we've granted since we started um, over $1.25 million. That's impressive. I uh, know. Oh, you know, just... Close your mind, really, that amount of money. Um, most of it, a substantial amount, um, uh, over 800000 is for the Brain Tumor Support Service at Austin Health. Um, we've got good partnership, a great relationship with the team at Austin. We go and visit them. Um, they wear the Camo beanies and wear the Camo badges and stuff like that. They're really, they're really, they really connect with where we come from. Um, and of course, you know, we mentioned the scholarships, excuse me, <coughs> sorry, we mentioned the scholarships. So over, we've done over 300 um, scholarships for kids in secondary school and we're changing the emphasis if we can to provide grants to schools um, to connect with, with kids, um, particular programs to keep them engaged in their studies. Yeah, right and of course, sport. We talked about um, North Heidelberg 
And um, many of your listeners would remember John Logue, and um, he worked for the CFMEU. Um, he was, uh, John liked to call him affectionately, um, a wordsmith, touch one, touch all. That's yeah. a classic Lowy. Oh, really? Say. Yes. Yeah. Wow, there you so, go. Credit where it's due. Yeah, yeah, and um, he he was really keen on cricket. So um, we do we partner we partner with Cricket Victoria, and we we fund cricket clinics in the western um, and northern metro region uh, for school kids, you know, on school holidays. Cool. So, Lowy's legends. <laughs> oh, that's so fantastic! So you're really precise about uh, where the um, money is going, it's so that it can uh, have the biggest effect. Well, yes, and that's a good question to me. So, um, uh, so, so yes, we we we've got a and we're up we're updating our website at the moment, and we'll have our purpose up there and our commitments. So, uh, we need to be clear on what we do, so that we so that we can't be we can't be all things for all causes. That's right. So, yeah. our focus is on. Um, our partnership with Austin Health, as I talked about, and educational opportunities for young people experiencing disadvantage. And we've got other related social justice programs. So from time to time, as we talked about things change, um, we may be able to respond to to programs if our committee um, considers that it fits into our framework for funding. All right. So, uh, people should actually go to your website to to yes. if they yes. if they need to consider, uh, you know, that they might be asking. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for talking to us today, Di. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate the opportunity, and um, yeah, it's been good. Yeah, and have a good uh, good uh, dinner. It sounds I'll like see, it's going to be a great. I may thing. see some of you at the dinner. Yeah. Thanks, Di. Okay. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks, Annie. Bye. The Renegade Pub Football League proudly presents its inaugural Pride Round, Paint in Victoria Park, Rainbow, on Saturday, August 24th. Celebrating diversity in pub football, this free community event offers a laid-back afternoon of gender-inclusive Aussie rules football, alongside DJs and a charity barbecue. Saturday, August 24th, gates open at 1230 For more information, including Pub Footy's August and September fixture, visit www.rpfl.com.au. The Renegade Pub Football League is a 3CR supporter. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when once again we heard that mantra of fossil conservatives. Coal remains an important industry for True Blue Aussie and it remains part of the global energy mix. Fossils Energy Minister Mark Conavan, or Fossils Minister Angus Failure, or maybe Big Supremo scuttled them more less than himself, flashing a lump of beautiful coal, I hear? No, no, none of them. It was Socialist Party's out-of-control, radical, penny left wing. And it's so refreshing to know the Socialist Party has learned its lesson. Don't oppose the government on anything. A surefire method of getting yourself elected. Ask whether the socialist stroke she would not have upset our Pacific neighbours, unlike Scuttle them, in rejecting a call to ban uh, coal. Penny reassured the great international resource corporations. Of course not. Coal remains an important industry for True Blue Aussie, and it remains part of the global energy mix. 
just thought I'd repeat that. But Penny then displayed the cosmic, import, the cosmic policy difference between the two major parties. Scuttle then did not respect the importance of climate change to nations it is wiping off the map, literally. Well, wiping won't help them that much with that much water, drowning. So presumably, Penny would have rejected the coal ban in the communique with respect, sensitivity. Thank you, Penny. Thank you, socialists. Thank you, true blue Aussie, they would have said, for being so considerate about destroying us. Similarly, on the threat of climate change, if there is, in the with friends like these, who needs enemies department this week, former fossils minister, now coal lobbyist, no, no, not Martin Cliche, although he's right at the top of the with friends like these, who needs list, no, Ian McFarton, who praised Petty for her endorsement of coal and abandonment of our neighbours. I was heartened, he said. Penny is a very... The all-be-news, should be congratulated for aligning the socialists on this and taking a bipartisan approach with the government on coal. Ian, of course, is not the with friends subject. We expect that of him. No, Anthony, bipartisan Anthony, alongside Penny and the socialist fossils resource shadow Joel Fax-Given-Wrong, who said true blue Aussie coal is relatively clean. That's like saying renewables, the sun, the wind, are relatively dirty, anyway, relatively keen, and would be used to generate electricity for at least another 20 years, and we should continue to capitalise on the demand for coal to create wealth and jobs here in Troubluwazi. Echoing another with friends like contestant, that highly esteemed not evil union, the AWU, which attacked the New South Wales Caring Business Class Party government. Oh, for its anti-worker agenda I hear again. Well, no again. It attacked the government for not standing up to activists, including many farmers, opposed to coal seam gas extraction and fracking, for not driving forward the development of local gas resources. See, it's jobs, jobs, jobs and the economy, infinitely more times important than irrelevancies like saving the planet and helping prevent our Pacific neighbours from sinking into the briny even before the rest of the planet goes down with them. And pragmatic Penny? During the election campaign, she was a strident voice against coal. So we can expect serious, meaningful differences in climate policy next election from Joel and pragmatic Penny and bipartisan Anthony. Now, perhaps our only comment on that decision this week we can have mixed metaphors, so surely we can have mixed nursery rhymes. Georgie, Porgie, Puddin' and Pie kissed the boys and made them cry. All the king's horses and all the king's men will never put Georgie together again. But let's hope the verdict helps the living boy get together again, unlike the second victim. No, I'll do a second comment. On a positive note, George and his old mate, Jared Ridsdale, are back on the same roof again. Amazing. When they lived together in Ballarat, George had no idea, no idea his mate, Father Jared, was a serial pedophile. No connection, but we gained new respect for the credibility of Sydney shock jock Alan Court in the John's deeply researched opinions after he accused people of misinterpreting his comments that Big Supremo Scuttlebeb should stick a sock down New Zealand Big Supremo Jacinta Ardern's throat. 
uh, how were you? It misinterpreted Alan. They quoted what I said word for word. So it's quite possible Alan was also misinterpreted after he said former true blue Aussie big supremo Julia Gallinghard should be stopped in a sack, taken out to sea and thrown overboard. In fact, by quoting him word for word, we've been misinterpreting poor Alan for years on everything. Thank goodness we don't have to misinterpret the great truths brought to us by Lord Rupert of Wapping. For instance, if it wasn't for Lord Rupert, we wouldn't know the depths to which dull budgers sink. Afraid of hard work, the headline screamed. Farmhand experiment shunned by jobless. See, this scheme allowing young dole bludgers to earn up to 5000 a year over and above their public handout, on which they whoop it up, if they work on farms and agriculture, picking stuff, planting stuff, canning and packaging, and only 400 applied when there were 7,600 placements, and they could also get an additional fabulous $300 travel and living away allowance if prepared to travel more than 120 k to work which would go a hell of a long way. Naturally, Lord Rupert's whopping sin decried this display of obvious sloth. Go on whooping it up on their public handout. But we do have to wonder, listener, why young people wouldn't want to go and work in agribusinesses when we hear such glowing reports about their working conditions. Why they would be afraid of hard work. Lord Rupert quoted a Queensland carrot farmer who bemoaned he had to employ overseas workers because locals don't want to do the work. Can't understand why not. And the Minister for Starve the Poor, Michaelia Cost the Workers, also decried the sloth of bludging youth. And the head of Agforce couldn't understand why it was difficult to attract workers. We are surprised and disappointed that the trial has not been a success because agriculture is a dynamic, exciting, innovative and well-paying industry. Makes us even more critical of those young doll bludgers, doesn't it? Uh, unless he meant well-paying for his members in Agforce. No, no, Lord Rupert's correct. They're just afraid of hard work. At least he admits for his own purposes what it is, hard work. And the caring Ag Force employers wouldn't dream of exploiting young unemployed workers. Presumably the overseas workers are the Pacific Islanders whom our Deputy Big Supremo, Michael McComick, says can come here and work while their homes are sinking into the briny. And it might have helped if he'd explained just a bit how that was going to do anything about them sinking into the briny. Anyway, still on Lord Rupert and the media generally, particularly Lord Rupert's reluctance to say anything critical of the pejorative Dan State Socialist lot. Last Saturday, I joined several hundred, maybe even more people, big numbers and diverse groups, families, kids, older people like me, at an Extinction Rebellion take um, bike ride and walk along Sydney Road, ending with a die in at Brunswick Town Hall, calling for real action on climate change, if there is. And Monday, a group of about half a dozen, well, maybe even as many as eight or nine traders, blocked a train at Reservoir Station to complain that level crossing removal works would cost them profits. Hundreds of people protesting climate change, eight or so complaining about losing money, which may or may not be true, and which one did it cover and which one did Lord Rupert ignore? Yeah, you got it. Not the most challenging quiz of the year. Three pictures, big story, Skyrail. 
to Lord Rupert Skyrail as a pejorative alongside the word Dan. Ignore the fact that in, uh, in building over allows imaginative uses of public land. Protesters are vowed to disrupt train services in a fight, etc. And the protest also got big coverage on the commercial telly Monday night, which clearly showed the huge handful of people who were there. Much more important than hundreds of people fighting to save the planet, which Lord Rupert realised was not even worth mentioning. And the traders blocking the trains, why not block the cars? After all, although railway crossing removals come out of the public transport budget, they benefit cars much more than public transport. And Lord Rupert didn't see blocking trains to complain about your profits was irresponsible or unreasonable. Stopping people going about their business, unlike people blocking people making uh, people blocking people making profits in protests over well over anything Lord Rupert considers irresponsible and unreasonable, which just happens to be almost everything we consider to be responsible and reasonable. And as predicted on the week that was, cleverly analysing clues like Scuttle Them saying we were going to do it, as predicted, Scuttle Them officially announced True Blue Aussie was sending train killers, ships and planes and people killers to the Straits of Hormuz, with the number one train killer, Angus Dumbbell, standing beside him, nodding obsequiously. But good news, we are not getting involved, Scuttle Them said. So let's repeat our line of two weeks ago. One way of not getting involved is not getting involved. Finally, spare a thought yet again for poor, besieged, exploited, caring employers. The Federal Court ruled this week that lazy, avaricious workers who work longer hours than normal, their personal leave, like sick leave, should be paid on the number of hours they actually work rather than the basic hours. And poor, caring employers say this will cost them a fortune, including in back pay, which the court ordered. Our old mate Innes will cost workers of the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group which represented the caring employer in this case, could hardly speak. The decision is inconsistent with the widespread industry practice, he gasped, uh, which is in us uh, to, to rip them off. Surely they must have consulted the workers about the industry practice of not paying them. Good morning. And we're back again on Solidarity Breakfast. Marcus, you were just noticing that there was a, a very interesting article popped up yeah, in this morning's age, an article there, uh, another article from, yeah, about John Setka, how he, apparently, yeah, they're saying he's hired a private investigator to uh, out the source of the, the leaks from that executive meeting uh, six or eight weeks ago. Yeah, which is interesting. But I love the way they're reporting it as if uh, John Setka is this lone gun who uh, does whatever he likes. In fact, there he is. <clears throat> he works with a team. I mean, for goodness sake. Anyway, we're going to move on. We've got Don Sutherland on the line. G'day, Don. How are you? I'm uh, going quite well, thanks, Annie. And hello to you and all of your listeners. It's good to be back. Yeah, and uh, the subject of our conversation is what you've been writing about, which is the September 20 Day of Climate Action and Fair Transition. I'm very interested to... Uh, uh, encourage uh, more and more people to think through the idea of just transition, which is an essential concept uh, to enable us not just to protest against the climate emergency, but to develop uh, potentially 
a people's plan to uh, enable a transition that is just and rapid, because it needs to be both of those things, and also democratic. And it's very rare that you hear the concept of democratic uh, as an integral part of just transition. So uh, I've been uh, looking at what is being done, uh, not, I wouldn't say, comprehensively in the sense of every country of the world, but in a range of places. And uh, earlier this week, there was a report that wasn't widely reported in the mainstream media. Oh, surprise, of surprise. 120, of 100, yes, not surprisingly, 120-odd workers in an Irish shipyard that was earmarked for closure occupied the shipyard and the associated docks. Uh, and in one report, at least, part of the demands, apart from maintaining the engineering uh, uh, capability of the yard was to uh, apply it towards um, uh, the, the the building of uh, wind farms and uh, uh, associated renewable energy uh, physical technologies. And uh, although that dispute has been resolved in favour of the workers in the sense that their jobs are now um, in inverted commas guaranteed to the extent they can be, uh, it's not really clear just where that demand, that specific demand about um, a new type of um, manufacturing operation uh, exists. But I think it's indicative of the potential of worker control over just transition. In other words, what could be called a democratic just transition. When we jump to Australia, we head, of course, to September the 20th, and uh, for some unions at least, taking advantage of the ongoing week of action that will follow that, in which secondary school secondary school students have invited adults to join in. And there are many unions who are doing so in Australia, not enough, uh, and I'm not sure just how much membership participation they are driving. I think you know, more uh, questions need to be posed by organisations like yours about that, uh, but also um, they are endorsing just transition. So let's have a closer look at what it might mean. Uh, it's in- uh, yeah, no, but it's interesting because uh, the uh, pr- protest and uh, people coming out on the streets to uh, uh, what they're doing when they want people to come out in the streets like this is to show support, collective support, that this is the way the ship called Australia needs to go in all, in our future planning. Last Yesterday I went to a, a big end of town type of event that was all about Australia's hydrogen um, strategy. That's what they called it. And the... Uh, Chief Scientist of Australia gave an explanation of what uh, the technology was and he was making uh, specifically saying that it was all about being a... um, Because wind and solar are going to be doing the heavy lifting when it comes to uh, emissions, having no emissions, that a hydrogen would would fit in as the... Uh, energy source that would uh, make uh, take away the unreliability that element that is in 
inherent in wind and solar. But the reason why I bring it up is because this discussion that they were having was uh, involved companies like Simmons, Simmons and uh, uh, others, a big, big, you know, commercial elements, uh, uh, Origin, people like that, and it. It seems to me that the discussion is all about big business and it's their future planning and that they actually move really slowly and they don't necessarily think that the workers should be part of that conversation. I didn't see any workers there. No, of course not. Sorry, that was a long-winded thing. but Yeah, of course not. And I think that um, from the point of view of workers, the there are basically four options that flow from two essential ideas. Firstly, and there's a lot of work still to be done on this, climate change is real and it's happening at a rate that makes it an emergency from the perspective of the 90% of the population. Yeah. Now, the second, and that includes people in mining and energy-producing communities. That's right. And the second core idea that then leads to the four options is that um, just transition means that carbon-based energy production must be quickly replaced by some mix of solar, wind, tidal, thermal and hydro. Now, for workers and their unions, that means... What does that mean? It means that the transition in the transition there will be immediate new jobs that use the skills they already have provide quality training and the new skills that are required, and a healthy and safe work, uh, working environment and no loss of income. Now, that's what it means, must mean, from the point of view of workers. Now, therefore, there are four options, and the first two are really not on. One is to reject the science, which is even more uh, 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 confirming that uh, the basic idea about uh, climate change being real and being an emergency. Or it can accept the science and trust that an LNP will fix the problem. Well, that's not a reality. But the last two are real. Firstly, they can observe the proposal of plans that come from governments. So, for example, you have the Victorian Andrews government working on a more rapid new renewable energy target, which is with a comprehensive role for government in all of that. But there are proposals and plans that do come from employers, like you described, which are about go slow, uh, mainly, but also union centres and experts in the field. So, for example, the Conservation Council has got some ideas about this, and also Friends of the Earth, particularly in Victoria. That's right. Yeah. Now, so these are where these plans come from, but they are not worker-driven. So the fourth option is to introduce this idea that workers in their communities, workers in their workplaces and industries or workers in a geographic community become the prime drivers or as uh, the late Martha Hanukkah used to talk about, as the prime, as the protagonists in the process of just transition. Now, uh, and that's because the expert approach that is by coming from governments or some other expert group. Well, usually the- usually what's, what I got from that thing yesterday was that you've got a, a big business player <coughs> has a plan 
and they influence the um, chief scientists. Yes. And then the government asked the chief scientist and a uh, a group to investigate well, perhaps, something. Perhaps we can come back to that because there's something very important about that, which is raises one of the dilemmas about the what I'm arguing ought to be a democratic just transition. So the just transition, which is also loosely associated with the Green New Deal stuff that's come out of, very important stuff that's come out of the United States mainly, um, the democratic just transition is based on workers taking control, either right from the start or in the process of observing and picking up on uh, uh, plans that they define as being useful from their point of view, but inadequate also because there's not, not a strong enough role for their control over the situation. So what would worker-controlled or democratic transition look like? Firstly, it means that the government's role is not as the funder and director, but rather as a funder and enabler and supporter of workers in their communities or in their workplaces. Mm, a completely different focus. It's a different role. Mm. Now, I think there are elements of that in what's going on in the transition plans that are very real in Germany and in Spain. Mm. It's also uh, the sort of approach that the Cubans have. Uh, yes, the Cubans are very big on that approach as well. Mm. Uh when it comes to the employers, their primary concerns, whether we like it or not, will be profitability and control. That's right, and, that's and control. That's the bit that's really important in their so heads. So let's dig deeper into what democratic just transition might look like. Firstly, it elevates as much as is possible and maximises workers at their work and in their communities as the protagonists in, the socio, in that whole process. Um the technocratic outside experts, many of whom will have something real to offer, are situated as assistants and educators and enablers at the service of the protagonists. Uh, Then there are some other essentials that flow from that. Workers and communities are enabled and encouraged to design and implement the plan for transition from fossil to renewable in their communities. So so are you talking about, I mean, if we talk about it on the ground, there are a couple of uh, country towns in Victoria, like Vanilla, I think it is, people like that, who have, uh, they spat the dummy regarding the cost of electricity and they've created their own local hub. Uh, Is that what you're talking about? Um, that sort of thing? That sort of thing, yes. And I think it's interesting if their starting point was the cost of electricity. Yeah, yeah, what, yeah. That, that was a while ago. It was a year ago or something. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's okay. That's that's the recent past and they're, they're getting... Uh, I don't know anything more than what you've just said about Vanilla, but... Because oh, I, I, I went into a thing about though, it. The important thing about that is that their starting point is the cost of electricity. And there are some unions who are very, very nervous about 
um, what, how their members, I'm talking about union centres being nervous about how their members will react if they are more assertive about a rapid transition. And so they, they know it's necessary... And so their starting point and focus is on energy prices. Well, you know, so they have to stop being that. You know, it, 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 words are one thing, but you know, action, real on the ground. Oh, look, we, this is the way to get across this raging river on this rope ladder. Yeah. If they actually showed people that the outcomes could actually work. Yeah. So. One of the biggest dilemmas with what I'm proposing about democratic just transition in which workers in their communities are in command of the process is, of course, that there is embodied in the situation at the moment is the workers' own cynicism that they can change anything. And that is a product of how, how, the, how employers imprint their workers' heads. And we have to we have to acknowledge that as a reality. But the only way of defeating that that cynicism is by finding ways to bring workers to the fore, or to encourage those workers who are trying to come to the fore as the protagonists. Marcus, you yeah. wanted to say something. Yeah, here in Victoria, Don, down in the Latrobe Valley, there's the worker owned and uh, worker owned and controlled uh, Earth Worker Cooperative, which was set up to yeah, for, for that reason, to allow workers to transition out of coal and into the uh, solar solar energy. Yeah. Um, my apologies. My uh, my dog has gone all oh. red and green at the same time. <laughs> we just remind the listeners that they're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus, and we're talking to Don Sutherland. We're talking about... Uh, the uh, September 20th day of action for climate and uh, unionists, workers, uh, kids. The kids are asking people to uh, actually go onto the streets in major demonstrations of support for the climate and our future. But also we're talking about just transition. Yes, and just in regards to... I do know a little bit, not enough, about the Latrobe Cooperative. And that is a good example of uh, conceptually the uh, what we're talking about. Uh, however, I think it's possible to present a sort of a I don't hesitate to use this word, but we use it for brevity's sake a checklist to determine how to make these initiatives more strategically impactful. So within a community, impactful. That's that's an interesting word. Well, I just, having I more I, impact, I, eh? Go on. I, I think I'm just being made it up. Vocabulary there, but anyway, <laughs> I think everyone gets the point. Yeah. So, so there's a set of steps in the process. I guess you can talk about. First step in the transition sequence is to study in detail the existing reality, including any hierarchy of industries and businesses and so on, and then the interaction of those with other businesses and also uh, competitors and supply relationships in other geographies, if I can talk about it like that. And then there is a sense in which the primary goals over five to ten years are defined by nature. And that is the primary goal, of course, is to have a the renewables rolling at effective within about ten years. 
But there is what needs to occur are more specific objectives that are defined specifically by the local workers in their industries or the communities. Well, uh, you know, it's interesting. You should. Uh, I suppose one of the things that I'm I'm pointing to is there are two things going on here. There's the overview, which is. A uh, big business sees everything in big in in uh, they they want big. Uh, 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 there's two dimensions. The thing uh, the thing about uh, um, with electricity, for example, it was centralised, it, and but it, previously it was local. It was done locally, uh, but when they did the SEC, actually there was this process towards making it into a big business, right? And it was considered to be more efficient to do it that way, which, you know, and there were outcomes that would, you know, and it was argued that, da, 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 da. but it actually was mo- it moved from local to the large and big business likes large because, you know, you make your money out of your small units accumulated. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, well, uh, I think in the history of electricity supply, that's a pretty fair description. It starts as as um, as locally developed, and then it does become a large public uh, publicly owned entity, which, of course, would then set up for yeah, and it's considered to have economy of scale. Yes. But for sustainability, there needs to be a new roadmap. It would appear to me. Yes, and but what I'm saying is, and it that probably ties to your democra- democracy concept as well. Yes, and, and and the the local roadmap has to be designed by the workers. That's the starting. That's the best position. Now, within that, however, it is true that there are expert groups. Whether they're officially recognised as such is. A different matter. So I'm thinking there, for example, about the Conservation Council of Friends of the Earth, or a group like the experts who are associated with the cooperative in the Latrobe Valley. Those experts are really important and may bring forward the ingredients of a plan to the workers that the workers have some uh, support for. Oh, uh, yeah, that they can see it as being realistic. Sorry, in, I've got to. I've got to emphasise this, in democratic just transition, although that's a useful starting point, there is a handover point in which the direction and decision-making goes into the hands or is actually taken by the workers themselves. And that will lead to not just... Because workers are not stupid. They know that there is a problem of competition and relationships with other communities. Although it starts, therefore, and is driven from a specific geography, which may be local or bigger than that, it also takes into account what's happening in other related geographies. It's, it's interesting that you should say that because in that thing that I went to yesterday, there were two representatives of particular companies that were around who built a, a dealt in supply of gas. And uh, they were talking about if there were to be any structural uh, infrastructure changes to what was going through the gas system, because uh, there's a whole series of pipelines, etc., that run through the whole of our our um, 
environment to be able to uh, push the LNP through the system uh, that uh, they would have to work in a more cooperative manner to make this change. Well, and this was business. One of the things that hasn't changed um, about uh, capitalism, we're in yeah. 21st century capitalism, one, one way in which it's not very different from 19th century capitalism is that it actually does require some form of cooperation yeah. as well as competition in order to, be a, to survive. Yeah. And uh, the modern form of that can potentially open up opportunities that workers through worker councils, community councils and so on, can reshape to make their own plans come to fruition. Uh, that's what I mean when I say that the starting point is is to study the existing reality about the hierarchy and relationship of all the businesses that are relevant. And, of course, the composition of the workforce that is actually there. Because sitting there, there is a workforce, many of whom, many workers, have skills that are critical for a just transition that are not used by their employers. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? They may be unemployed or underemployed. It's because they're not valued. No, they're not seen. They're not valued as a social as a social value, they're only, and the reason why they're not used is because they don't have a profit-making value. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So th- th- we have to start thinking about and discussing not just just transition, but how we make just transition real, practical, through a more democratic process. And you can use I, I use phrases like worker-controlled. Uh, there are any other number of other phrases can be used. And often the catalyst might be an effort to close down an existing business entity because it's no longer profitable, as in the case of the Belfast shipyards. That then becomes the trigger to say, well, no, we're not going to give up these jobs. We're not going to give up the existing tooling in the place. We're not going to let the employer put it on the scrap market. We are going to say this is a trigger point to begin the process for transitioning rapidly to socially useful production based on renewable and on renewable uh, energy production. Well, there you go. You've given us. We've come to the end of the uh, segment, but uh, you've uh, given us a lot to think about, Don. Yes. Well, I hope so because um, uh, we've just got ten or twelve years, and maybe less, given the exponential rate of change. And the reality is, of course that the 90% working people are going to be harmed far more directly, far more seriously, and far faster than any other part of the the population. That's right. So uh, putting them in... Leaving the bosses and governments in control is just too slow. Okay. Bringing workers into control can speed up the whole process so that, it's, that it means something real to them. And there's an encouragement for people to actually join the 20th of September climate action. Yeah. And any action that's happening in the few days that are following, as, as is apparently planned. Okay, thanks very much for talking to us today, Don. All the best to everybody. Great to be back. Thanks, Don.
Yeah, and that's the end of the program. Lots of things to think about. Uh, we uh, gave you a bit of news at the beginning of the day. Uh, we went up to Queensland to the Adani protest camp. And then we spoke to Di Cummins about the life and times of John Cummins, the John Cummins Memorial Foundation and the upcoming John Cummins Victorian Union Awards dinner. Yeah, then we had This Is The Week That Was and then we finished up with a chat with Don Sutherland. We're going to go out. It sounds to me like we need a revolution. So, And uh, when uh, recently Rebel Diaz came to Australia, they were a fighting group and uh, they've decided that the revolution has come. So we're going to go out with that. Don't forget that if you want to get to uh, any unionists, any workers who want to uh, hear about what's going on with Jap Ruang, uh, then you can go to Trades Hall at 9.30. There's going to be a, a discussion about it. And uh, then there's going to be a convoy up to Ararat to support the uh, Jab Rawang people defending the birthing trees. to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.